Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a stakeholder-centered coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Today's episode is another installment of the series, Conversations with Coaches, where our top coaches share the behind-the-scenes unfolding of their careers. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtain so you can see the messy ingredients that go into building a successful coaching career and the rewards that come at the end of the tunnel for those who are willing to put in the effort. I'm your host, Brandon Murgard, and if you'd like to ask a question or recommend a guest, send me an email to podcast at mgscc.net. My guest today is a Bay Area-based coach who holds an advanced certification with Stakeholder Center Coaching, as well as a number of other tools. She's been coaching senior managers and team leaders across multiple industries for nearly a decade and a half. She's a personal friend and is a longtime frequent flyer with Stakeholder Center Coaching and our founding team. Please welcome my guest, Kimberly Gonzalez. It's great to have you on the show, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been a, a little bit since we've worked on our last project together, hasn't it? It has been. And that one was so much fun that when you invited me to this one, I wanted to say yes. Uh, for for those of you who who haven't had the pleasure of seeing Kimberly's performance, uh, she modeled the the role of leader in many of our coaching lab videos. Uh, she was accompanied by Chris Coffey, who played the role of coach, and together they demonstrated some specific coaching techniques and how to apply them in various situations. Uh, this series is, of course, available to all coaches going through the certification program. But Kimberly, I'm, I'm very joyful to get to sit down with you together today to talk about how you've built this career for yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, first question, Kimberly, have you <laughs> always wanted to be a coach? No. Um, if I go really far back, I wanted to be a veterinarian. But then once oh, okay. I actually got into the world of work, um, I found myself drawn to banking. Uh, my undergraduate background is, is a degree in economics, and I, I got interested in banking. I had some friends who were working at a, one of the large global banks, and that's where I landed uh, straight out of undergrad. So that's how I got started. And Yeah, well, let's, let's start there. What was it that drew you to economics? What drew you into finance? Um, I like to know how things work and I like to understand context and put it together. And at one point, um, well, I will say I, I was never drawn toward doing the quantitative work that an economist might do. And so quickly decided I would try to use that basic framework and understanding and take it a different direction that, um, offered more opportunity for interaction with other people uh, rather than primarily working with data. So, mm -hmm. Okay. So you went and studied this. Tell us about your, you mentioned you got right into a company after graduation. Tell us what that experience was like. Um, it was a lot of fun. I was living and working in San Francisco, um, working for a large global bank downtown. Um, and I, I began with a group that was um, 
in the bank's corporate bank. So we were serving Fortune 500 customers, basically cross-selling short-term funding services. And so I had an opportunity to work on the trading floor, which was so much fun. I loved the chaos and the energy and the intensity of that. Um, I often, as I look back on my career, think I was just so lucky because I worked with phenomenal people and had phenomenal leaders. So I was not one of those people who, you know, got burned in corporate. Um, but I really enjoyed that and, and began in that kind of marketing group, um, you know, did some analysis, had the opportunity to, you know, sit in the room with CFOs and listen to strategy and, you know, how we could support them in short-term funding needs and ended up moving onto the credit side as well. Um, as I, as I continued to grow, I wanted to learn more and understand things at a deeper level. So, um, I think looking back, what I noticed about that and in, in that role in particular, um, is, really honing an analytical lens, but also understanding stakeholder groups, right? Because you need to be successful in business development. You need to satisfy credit criteria and manage risk. You need to be proactive in partnerships with other banks and, and professionals, right? To form these large loan packages. So it was a good it was a good experience, and I also really appreciated working for an international bank and having that experience of, you know, being, I was one of two women in a branch of more than 100 Japanese wow. men. And that was a really unique experience, um, both culturally and, you know, from a gender perspective. So, mm -hmm. How did that shape you? I mean, surely that had some some type of impact working in, in a, a team with that type of gender and cultural ratio. Um, I think uh, the way that it shaped me was it just made me even more curious. And that's something I've gotten spades naturally. Um, and so it gave me an appreciation for some of the the elements and differences in communication style in expectations about what teamwork means. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was a really good learning experience and sometimes felt, I don't know, it didn't, I didn't feel lonely um, per se. There was another female colleague who was, you know, great. And the men that I worked with were phenomenal. So we, I was part of a great team. I enjoyed learning. There was, you know, lots of give and take and opportunities to challenge ourselves. So it was all good. Well, it, it almost sounds to me like you've been preparing for this role in coaching for some time, working with great leaders, high performing teams, uh, chaos, energy, and intensity. Well, boy, that sure sounds, sounds like coaching, does it not? But, well, it sounds like what a lot of the people we work with are working in and living through, doesn't it? Yes, yes. It gives yeah. that perspective. I mean, as a coach, we are one step removed. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. I th like that was a lot of fun. I liked it. I, so coaching keeps me close to it. Do you find that having that perspective and having that uh, experience uh, changes how you might approach uh, a client relationship or how you approach a coaching engagement in general? Um, I think it 
heightens my sense of the importance of context. Um, really trying to get a sense for what is that leader's context? What do they operate in? What's the culture? What are the demands? What's happening in their industry, in the business? So, you know, macro forces. Um, sure. I think it, I think it definitely shapes my approach. And did you continue working in banks and in finance all the way up to the point that you, you transitioned towards becoming a coach? Um, no, I had an interesting transition. Um, I worked in banking and shortly after the birth of my first child stepped out. And what I noticed as, as my children, you know, got into school and became school age, I was actually drawn into coaching because I was having trouble uh, with my son at that time. And I ended up hiring a coach to help me with parenting issues. And through that process and journey, um, just kind of fell in love with the profession. I didn't know that it existed as a profession, um, but a lot of that really resonated. And so that's, that's what put me on my way. Um, and I'd, I'd say that as I, as I took that learning, I, I ended up becoming deeply drawn into the education and training space and ended up um, transitioning into training work. So I was a trainer of trainers working with educational leaders and mental health professionals and really used a curriculum that was focused on leadership and developing respectful relationships. And so was privileged to do that work in the U.S., in China, in Spain, and it all really dovetails um, kind of with my business background and, and became part of my personal philosophy of leadership and life and the way that I want to be in my own relationships. Wow. So your first introduction to coaching purely as a profession came from working with a coach that helped with parenting styles and parenting techniques? Yes. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think that's one of the hardest places to jump in because for most of us, um, nothing is more dear to us than children and family. So that's a really, you know, a really unique space to work in, <laughs> but oh, yeah. you probably know this and, and coaches who are listening to when we're coaching leaders, it's rare that, at least for me in my work, it's rare that it's only about the business, right? Mm. Because who we are and, and the way we are in relationships shows up at work, it shows up at home. And so I think that's just an easy and obvious access point. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, when you are doing a coaching engagement, do you also integrate parts of the, the home unit, whether that's a family or, or who the leader is being outside of, of their work environment? Um, that's a great question, Brandon. I do, and I kind of use my intuition as to when, but I will encourage leaders to include family members as stakeholders if it feels relevant. Um, I think that can be really powerful. And, and I always, I, I do believe it's true. Family are the toughest stakeholders you will ever have, right? Because they really know who we are, who we aspire to be and how we fall short. 
Um, but people who have the courage to do that, um, it's often tremendous, right? They see the ripple effect at work, at home. And for me, that's like the win-win. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are key, the key people who can benefit from, from our behavioral change at home. Uh, so let's, let's get some quick stats for our listeners here. Uh, how many years have you been formally coaching? Um, I have been coaching since 2010. So mm-hmm. Excellent. Quite, you know, more than a dozen years. Yeah. And uh, you've, I know that you've worked with countless people. Um, when you think about just those that you've worked one-on-one with in a coaching capacity over the, the years, how many would you say that is? That's probably north of 120 or so. And how many of those used some version of stakeholder-centered coaching or the tools therein? Um, pure stakeholder-centered coaching, I'm, I'm approaching kind of 10, but I actually use elements of stakeholder-centered coaching now with, with anyone I coach, even if it's not the formal coaching methodology, because um, I just think they're so valuable. Mm-hmm. Do any tools jump to mind when you think about the pieces that you've kind of uh, selectively extracted and used outside of a formal stakeholder center coaching engagement? Yes, I have to, you know, say a big thank you and shout out to Marshall Goldsmith and um, Frank and Chris who introduced me to that concept of feed forward. For me, that is, uh, it's mm-hmm. one of my biggest takeaways. Um And I think also, you know, you've probably heard Frank Wagner say this as well, that in spite of a goal that a leader might choose to work on, the benefit and the impact to relationships is the most important. So I think I always have that in the back of my mind that, you know, whether in coaching or out of coaching, being mindful of our key relationships and and being disciplined about maintaining them, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, let's start to establish a timeline. You, you've graduated, you've gone into industry along the path. Uh, you, you started working with a coach for parenting. What was the, the time gap between the time that you've been introduced to coaching as a profession to the time that you actually uh, took action towards becoming a coach? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, it was probably, yeah, it was probably, it, yeah, it was probably like five to seven, probably five to seven years. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, by the time I got there, I was all in, like, I'm going to get trained. I'm going to build skills in this. I'm going to bring this coaching into the other training work that I'd been doing. So when I got there, mm-hmm. I went all in. What did that transition look like for you as you moved from from what you were doing before to actually becoming a coach? Um, It wasn't a huge transition, to be honest, because at that time, my work was scoped to work for me in the time that I had available while raising a family. And so um, maybe like, you know, many people, as you come to 2.0 and 3.0 of your life, that's where you have more space, more spaciousness for some of the things you've been wanting to do, but have, you know, prioritized. Um, so that's been, that's been my case. Mm. 
I like this idea of, of 2.0, 3.0 U and kind of a, an iterative version. And I'll, I'll flag how Chris described this to me that always stuck with me. He was such a golfer. Uh, he was describing to some of his buddies who are all mid seventies. He said, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're on the 17th hole. That's where our <laughs> life is. We're in the 17th hole of, of the, uh, the course. I thought that's so funny. Such a Chris yeah. way to put it. Um, Such a Chris way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, iteration. I, I'm all about that iteration. So it wasn't a full step change for you. It was maybe a, a, a smaller change going from what you were doing because you, you, you've, uh, suggested that somehow there's this tangible amount of available time between raising a family and having a, a full-time job to do more. How did you make that work for yourself? Because I need to learn this. <laughs> um, yes, tangible. It has been my experience that there is a limited amount of time. Um, you know, I, I just I just did what I could and um, was clear about how much time I had. And as my time expanded, my ability to do more of what I wanted, more training, more work, more, you know, more coaching that, that just moved in lockstep with it. But for me, I was super clear about what my first priorities were and my first sense of responsibility. So I, I also had the luxury and the privilege of picking that up because, you know, mm -hmm. my partner was, supporting our family. So I was in a position to do that work while raising mm -hmm. children. Uh, that's great. I mean, in, in our, <clears throat> you know, many times in our, our community Q and a calls, it comes up, you know, how do we actually bridge from what I'm doing now to being that full-time coach? And we always recommend wherever possible, make it a, a 0.1 version, not the full step change. If you can take what, whatever you have, Fill that space with coaching as it grows, uh, grow with you. But this is also a very entrepreneurial mindset. So let's, um, let me ask you then, uh, because a common theme that comes out uh, is not just coaches being drawn into coaching, but also deeply interested in entrepreneurship and the act of running their own practice, what role did entrepreneurship play for you in uh, building momentum towards becoming a full-time coach? Um, I actually come from a family of entrepreneurs the last three generations. We've been family business owners and small business owners. So it's what I grew up with. Um, and I think for me in that sense, it was a natural progression, right? I, I, I saw that as another way of life besides being employed by a company. I think there are benefits to both. And for me, it was the obvious choice because I wanted flexibility. I wanted control over my schedule and I wanted to do what I wanted to do, right? Which was coach. And I didn't want to do some other things, which would be part of a job description. So I, I had the luxury of getting to create, you know, the, the role and the work that I wanted. Let's talk about the less jazzy side of career development, the specifically the fears and failures. But, you know, let's let's ease into this. Um, what's the hardest part about being a coach? I think for me, one of the hardest things is um, working in isolation at times. And it's something that over the years I have been successful in changing because that wasn't working for me. But it still um, is probably the biggest thing. I really like being with people in person, being part of a team. That's 
kind of my preferred way of working. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you manage that? Because I know that's something I certainly struggled with, but many of our coaches do as well. Yeah. Um, I just kept looking for people that I resonated with, um, and was really fortunate to find that in Chris and Frank. And I created my own team, um, in my very, you know, first experience with the stakeholder-centered training, I remember immediately a few of us got together, went out to dinner, and, you know, began to support each other. And we did skills practice after the training, and we just, you know, we kind of built a network. So that's something that I'm good at, is finding people who can support me. And I'm a person who actually needs support, and it's taken me a long time to be able to say that without thinking that it should be different, right? Oh, I should be able to do this alone. Maybe, but that's not who I am. So now I just know that I need to find smart people who are, you know, ambitious and have a nice complement of skills and qualities to mine. That's my answer. It has taken time. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful answer. It's, it's a, a very pervasive problem is the loneliness and isolation of working as a solopreneur, as many coaches are. Um, but what you've said is don't, what you've done well is you, sounds like you negotiated with yourself and rather than saying, okay, you have to figure out how to do it. You actually said, we don't have to, we need to adjust the environment so that I don't have to learn to do that. And you found that in uh, some uh, cluster of coaches you got together and you actually practiced. Uh, is that a path that you would recommend to others to take as well? Um, yes, I would say a path is, you know, figure out what you need to be happy, do your best work. Like, how do you like to work? If you're introverted, you know, I know people who are just thrilled to do everything over email and they love, um, you know, they love to take that kind of more solo behind the scenes approach. They don't, you know, they don't love to be in the room with people. So just know who you are, find other people that, that you resonate with, who challenge you. Um, I think some, for some of us, actually most of us, unlearning is part of our learning, right? And what I might've tried before that worked in a different context might not work now. And it might have worked five years ago, but it doesn't work for me anymore. So I keep having to like invent things and keep trying new things and let go of what doesn't work. That was a wisdom bomb right there, Kimberly. Can we say that one more time about <laughs> unlearning? I, I want everyone to take this away, put it in your pocket. This is a take home for you. What'd you say about unlearning? Unlearning. And I, you know, this is something that I think Frank has talked about, um, sticks in my mind, but it, I'm learning. Like I learned something and it doesn't work in this context or I learned something, but it's no longer the most important thing. So I have to be willing to let go of what doesn't work for the sake of finding something better. Amazing. Amazing. If you're listening at home, take that away. Unlearning is part of learning. It is absolutely true. I, I think my first exposure to the concept of unlearning was in some uh, a research paper I was writing on uh, part of the literature of you talked about higher order learning theory and the various types of unlearning. 
So if you really want to treat yourself tonight, ladies and gentlemen, do some Google searching on unlearning <laughs> the ways that it works. Uh, it is, it is as it, it may be as important as learning itself. It certainly can help um, make some room, but okay. Kimberly, you mentioned in there, find ways to be happy. Let's, let's talk about that. What do you do when you find yourself in a position of being unhappy? First, I have to become aware of it. And for me, there's a difference between <clears throat> stewing in my unhappiness and then realizing, oh, I'm not happy and I want to do something about that. So mindfulness. But then, like, for me, I know that if I, um, if I change my perspective, that will help me. So number one thing I can do is get outside. And I live somewhere where it's easy to get outside, right? And I have the mobility to get outside. So I do that. Um, exercise is huge and a place that I'm trying to bring in even more and, and not just exercise, but movement. I notice that movement makes me feel good. And literally I stop being stuck where I physically am. And at least I can take my body somewhere else. And that often will shift things. Um, I also love like taking pictures. So perspective, if I, if I go outside and get interested in nature, I'm going to shift my perspective pretty quickly and then I can come back and refocus. What about you? Because I think this is something we're all struggling with and I'm always looking for more tools. So what, what would you add there? Sure. Well, Kimberly, this is your interview, but if you insist, um, <laughs> I, I am just such a big evangelist for kettlebells, uh, levered weights, Seriously? Ket kettlebells, okay. clubs, maces, and sandbags are pretty much my, my staple. I, I spend at least 20 to 40 minutes with them every day. Uh, and sometimes that is actually doing kettlebell workouts, but other times it's throwing a bunch of weights into a wheelbarrow and just walking a few miles with my kids inside because they love that. They get these little steering wheels and pretend like they're driving. It's just, it's a great uh, full body movement. Um, but yeah, I mean, exercise, sleep, and a good diet. I, I, lots of water. I can't, uh, you can't see this here, but I have one, two, three, four, five uh, liquids on my desk. I have a large container of about a liter of tea. I have another caffeinated tea. I have a coffee. I have sparkling water and I have flat water. Um, wow. You are be... really prepared. Yes. Yes. It's, That's crazy. it's, uh, um, it's a must, but these routines, I think, are are really important. Are there any other routines that you have established to help you cope with the challenges and stresses of being a coach and an entrepreneur? Um, yes, and I would say, like, they're they're applicable to anybody, whatever your life or your work is. Um, and again, this has been an unlearning. I was very much raised with the philosophy of work first and play later. But yeah. what I'm coming to find out is I like, I need some stuff for my soul to be in a good space. And so attending to first things first, I finally got that message, right? If I don't put my own oxygen mask on, I'm not going <laughs> to be able to do it. Um, so for me, you know, having time, taking time in the morning to ideally get outside, um, I love music. You and I have talked about music before. And when I make time for that, I, I am always reminded, like, why do I not do this more? Even if it's just listening to one song, right? It could mm -hmm. be with my headbuds on, uh, my earbuds. 
I don't know, I love a good cup, cup of coffee sitting outside if possible. Um, and just giving myself time to ease into the day and kind of treat myself with a little bit of compassion before I just push the start button. Mm. Um, well, just as a point of, as a point of fun questioning, uh, when you are listening to music, can you, you know, throw out a handful of, of songs or <laughs> names or, and actually think about the question, ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening on your commute, listening at the gym, watching on YouTube, uh, Kimberly and I love sending, uh, uh, music recommendations to each other, YouTube playlists, single songs, whatever it is. If you want to recommend a song to us, there is literally no style that we are are not interested in. If there's any <laughs> any song artist or, or style you want to recommend, email it to podcast at mgscc.net. We are starved for new recommendations. Let us know what's in your playlist. So Kimberly, what's in yours? Yeah, thank you. Um, I love that suggestion. I hope that you will share the playlist <laughs> suggestions that you get um i've been going eclectic i would say my taste is always eclectic and i also tap my kids for suggestions because i don't Mm. spend enough time looking so um i've been going kind of into soul and r&b so i've been listening to um a band called jungle um and they have a song i love called lifting you um which is a great, it's impossible for me to listen to it without dancing. Um, when I'm hitting the gym these days, I'm listening to like old Led Zeppelin B-sides and just appreciating some driving guitar. Um, I can't remember who introduced me to Leon Bridges, um, but I discovered his music a couple years ago and love his voice. Um, so those, those are a few, but I'm always looking always looking for more. Yeah. I think just before we started, I sent you uh, a recommendation of Pliny, uh, who's mm-hmm. an instrumental instrumental guitarist. If you're into that, Polyphia um, is, is by far one of the best. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I don't say this much. So if you come across this and you don't know it already, it might be a little bit jarring, but I'm really, really hot on uh, death metal speed metal, melodic metal. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the Nordic countries, things that are, are just fast and, and brutal. Uh, so I'm, uh, my recent playlist I'm looking at now has some Omnium Gatherum, Arch Enemy, uh, some other names I, I won't mention for, <laughs> for a number, a number of reasons. Um, but you and I have also exchanged, you know, some early nineties or some mid nineties, uh, West Coast hip hop and a lot of that old jazzy um, yep. New York boom bap kind of uh, kind of music. But I also have in here some Indian meditation music. I have some some EDM and um, Dirt Monkey. That's who I'm going to send. That's why I intended to send you. I'm going to send you a okay uh, from a group called called Dirt Monkey. Just a really interesting electric music. Uh, Yours but. is much more eclectic than mine, and I, I confess that in recent years, be, you know, because I've got a college-age daughter who loves pop, uh, I I have listened to a lot of Harry Styles. <laughs> okay, okay, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm learning. Well, I'm can- learning to appreciate some different styles of music. I, I yeah. 
they're all Keeping good. Keeping an open and, ear, an open mind is always important in life. Well, I've learned a lot from you because I, I don't, I don't do any of the, I, I don't seek out pop, popular music per se. Um, but I, I do catch a lot of the mainstream. I've catched a number of mainstream artists from you who you have passed on from, you know, one of your kids or from your own, um, your own playlist. But I think that truthfully, I mean, we talk about routines and managing stress. I think having some really good playlists to suit your mood or artists to, to draw from can really have a positive impact, um, on whatever is going on. Would you agree with that? Totally. And it's actually something that I encourage leaders to do, right? Sometimes people need a theme song or like life is hard. They're going through layoffs. Um, it, it's mm -hmm. tough out there. And so when I have a client who connects with music, I remind them like create a playlist for yourself that'll boost you or strengthen you or whatever it is you feel you need. Mm -hmm. Music is huge, right? You know, changing your state, man, oh, yeah. you can count on it. Totally. And you know, I will, I'll, I'll up the ante here, Kimberly, if you are, uh -oh. if you are following along, uh, here's a challenge and an invitation. So Kimberly, you're going to have to join me on this. So I'll need your green light before, right. before we officially do this. Um, I would love to invite our audience for a challenge first to see if they can find some style of music, some genre, some, some orchestration that you or I look at and say, boy, I have never come across anything like this before. Ooh, I love that. How Do about it. that? Okay. So what was the, tell me again that, that style you mentioned, the Nordic, <laughs> like, how did yeah. you explain that? It's, 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 it's just melodic. It's called mellow death. It's such a, uh, it's such a lame term. It's melodic death metal. It's, it's, it's very melodic. It's typically um, very guitar driven. <laughs> Um, but a lot of okay. the the music that comes from that region, which would also fall under the black metal category, uh, tends to have um, strong synth elements to it. And so you might oh, have some, you know, if you listen to someone like Children of Bodom, you know, their early, early, early music, pre-2000s, they would have this almost call and response between the the guitars and the keys. And it's just... It's different. I've always, since I was a little, little single digit age boy, loved metal. It's always been a part of me. I don't know why. Um, so there you go. Awesome. Uh, All right. Yeah. So challenge accepted. That's so a challenge. That is a yeah. genre that Brandon yep. and Kimberly have not heard of. And yep. mostly I can tell you the challenge will be with Brandon because- okay. Well, it's right, a team you have effort. A very strong musical background. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm. I've got some some Tuvan throat singing metal here. I've got some Scottish metal. I've got the old Viking Viking storyline type of stuff. Uh, but you know, there's no genre off off the table. The only one that I haven't been more into, I, I've been into in the past, but not so much these days, is country um, country western kind of stuff. Mostly for the subject matter doesn't appeal. Um, but the style mm -hmm. and the instrumentation is great. So I digress. The other invitation is if you have a playlist that you have uh, tailored to your mood, you know, this is my sad playlist, or this is the one that I listen to when I need good working background music, send us a link. Um, preferably, it's probably Spotify or YouTube since for accessibility, but whatever it is, send us a link. We're curious. Yeah. Um, good. And include music in your routines. So Kimberly, uh, 
making yes. this transition has a huge amount of uncertainty uh, that comes with it. And of course, that can produce fear. It can produce doubt. Um, you know, let's, let's take uncertainty as the prime focus. How did you address your ability to work in a highly uncertain field such as entrepreneurship? Um, I honestly, that's just been a place of growth for me. You know, I came out of banking that was very structured. Um, and so needing to figure out structure, right? We all need structure and having to recreate it for yourself, um, takes a lot of work and effort and learning trial and error, uh, with respect to the uncertainty, I, you know, I love some reframing on questions that I can I can ask to myself when I get, you know, fearful. What's the best thing that can happen? Mm. It's easy to go toward the worst. <laughs> and again, you know, like referencing values, how can I take what's one step I can take in the direction of what I want? And usually what I want is something that I've identified that's important for reasons that you know, that are really deeply resonant. And so that always helps me. I feel that my values pull me toward action, even when I'm afraid. And I just, I remind myself, like one of my, you know, quotes that was my, you know, Chris had that phenomenal signature line. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, um, be happy, Learn as if you're going to live forever, live as if you're going to die forever, be happy now. And one of my old signature lines was be creative, make a new mistake today, right? Rather than repeating the old one. So I remind myself that mistakes and failure is a natural part of learning. My brain knows that, but my central nervous system always freaks out, right? Like, oh, I don't want to do the wrong thing. But I, I just need to remind myself of that and surround myself with people who also know that and remind me and, you know, cheer me on for taking risks, cheer me for the times when I fail and fall short, you know, and ask me, what did you learn? What are you going to do with that? Right? I, lo I love our after action review for that reason and always have, you know, Chris's voice in my head. <laughs> what did you set out to do? What did you actually do? What did you learn? What, you, what will you do going forward? Yeah, it's a great tool. The video of you two doing that, um, I, I have to say I'm probably privileged to listen to that at least once every couple of weeks, that particular role play that you two did. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so you address um, uncertainty by increasing your confidence in your ability to fail and recover quickly a better person. Is that a fair way to summarize that? Yeah, because I can't, I have not figured out a way to, you know, get rid of uncertainty. So mm -hmm. I just try to increase my resilience and my ability to manage it and live with it and get stronger because of it. That mm -hmm. makes me feel more in control. Like, okay, cool. Give me more uncertainty. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you reduce the sting of fear is really what you're doing by, you know, through that process. Um, you know, as we talk about dealing with failure, uh, let's think, you know, can you, could you think of a significant failure that you made in your coaching career? Anything that comes to the top of your mind? You know, I, 
Well, I'll say this. Because I am teaching myself to always reframe failure, right, as learning, um, for sure, I have made mistakes. I have not had catastrophic failures in coaching. Um, And I hope that that remains the case. But in one of my early stakeholder-centered engagements, I had a pretty tough go of it. Um, I had a, a fabulous client who was courageous, who had the humility to ask for help. She was disciplined. What I didn't anticipate was that my sponsor, her CEO, might um, tack on a performance review into a stakeholder check-in session. And that really, like, you know that we as coaches aspire to help our leaders make those stakeholder check-ins safe for Mm -hmm. their folks and safe for themselves because most people are not comfortable with the process initially. So that actually, you know, took a little bit of work to get my client back on track where she had, you know, she kind of got a lot more than she bargained for in a check-in. And it, what was valuable for me about that learning was to not assume what somebody else might make up about the process, right? So now I'm always clear to say, and by the way, (laughs) my suggestion is that you keep the stakeholder check-ins clean and simple. Do not attempt something like a performance review while you're in a stakeholder check-in. And if you're in an organization or personally have a history of running over time, you know, make sure that you hold to that five to 10 minutes and let your people know, I'm structuring it this way intentionally. I want to respect your time. I'm going to follow this process every time. Here's what you can expect. So the learning was good, but it was uncomfortable, really uncomfortable for my client. Um, You know, they're always in the hot seat, not us. So if I heard that correctly, you you have a a, uh, client whom you're coaching and their manager during the stakeholder check-in tacked on the performance review to the leader that you are coaching. Is that correct? That's correct. Wow. What? What a what was it like receiving the message describing the situation from that leader? I have to imagine that was like just a, a complete facepalm moment. Yes, that facepalm. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, right, would, and um, yeah, it was tough. Right, there's a lot of feelings that go with that. So, and it also it really made me have to kind of work hard to rebuild trust because that was not what was supposed to happen. And I had not um, anticipated that. Mm -hmm. So Uh, what was running through your mind as you received that message? Like, were you thinking, Oh my Um, gosh, this is, this is done for, were you thinking, okay, you know, maybe we can salvage this. I think I was just connected to how my client had experienced it, which Mm. was inappropriate, not what we agreed to be doing and totally caught her by surprise. You know, to her credit, um, she was able to hear all of that information, right? She kept it together and managed herself and did so um, in a remarkable way. 
And when we got together and talked about it, you know, it was tough. It was tough. I think, I think that's a, a risk, right? That, you know, coaching can be messy at times and we as humans are messy. So that's part of what I really appreciate about our process and methodology is it's structured. So that's always kind of a, a, a path we're walking, right, is between flexibility and structure. But I feel like the structure is important for the safety of the process and the effectiveness. So with that experience now, I try to be more clear and give people who are very new to this framework a little more of a heads up, right? Like, let's think through <laughs> what are some ways that um, would support you in doing this well and what concerns do you have? And my leaders often have concerns, right? They, some of them don't want to get sucked in with a stakeholder whom they perceive as long-winded. It's like, okay, cool. Let's talk about how you're going to manage that to make it successful. And I've had leaders with north of 14 stakeholders. So, you know, being efficient with time is really important. Mm -hmm. And you talked about rebuilding the trust between the stakeholder and the leader. How did you go about doing that? Um, I think what, what was important, for, what I felt was the right choice there was, um, for me to really use that relationship that I had with the sponsor and just have an, an honest and direct conversation. Um, you know, I became aware that this is how a check-in happened and I want to let you know, because you're sponsoring this process and you want success, that's not going to help us be successful. And so please, you know, follow our process, keep the check-in, just a check-in. And if you as a leader need to speak to someone on your team, have another meeting, a conversation about another subject, you know, please schedule those separately from this. It helps keep it clean and positive for people. And was that a difficult conversation to have, or was that fairly simple given the, the sponsor's perspective on the coaching process? Um, it was, you know, it was simple. It might've been difficult, but I had built some trust with that sponsor and relationship and I had great respect for him as well. And so <clears throat> I think whenever, you know, whenever, I make a mistake or someone else does that I'm working with, you know, I just try to come honestly and say, Hey, there's something on my mind that I, I need to talk with you about. Is this a good time? Right. And I think, you know, Jathan Janov is somebody in our circle who has some phenomenal tools. His no fear conversations, I mm -hmm. think are a really, really cool script, both within coaching and in life. Um, Absolutely. If you're if you're yeah. wanting to find this resource, if you go to Google and you type in Sherm S H R M, Jathan Janov J N O V E, uh, no fear confrontation. You'll probably find the article right on top. And it is. It's it's. I have been. The more I read of Jathan's publications, the more our organization and our culture starts to get uh, firmed up because we put these tools in. We can finally walk yeah. away and be like, okay, that area is taken care of. It's it's. Uh, we don't have to worry about that problem anymore. 
Um, coming back yeah. to difficult conversations, how uh, can you think of other difficult conversations you've had to have as a coach? Oh, yes. Um, would you like to hear more about them? <laughs> Given your enthusiasm <laughs> with the answer, I'm going to say yes. Please do. Um, oh, you know, I think for me, one of the toughest, it's rare, but I find that it can kind of hook me. So I have to be a little careful in my own preparation. And that's someone who is enthusiastic, but then does not put the time in and is inconsistent. And there, you know, I always have Chris Coffey's words in my mind, like, you know, need to go at that directly and mm. to take it seriously. And so, yes, those are always, mm. I find those to be a little bit of a difficult conversation and they're important to not dodge. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I can't remember who said it, but that your success is directly proportionate to the number of, of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. And I do see that very true, especially in coaching. Um, but I, I'm recalling the, uh, the demonstration video, the, the coaching lab video, that one of them that you did with Chris, where he really does, I mean, and these were uns, uh, relatively unscripted. You, don't, you didn't know he was going to go this direction, but it was, the scenario was that uh, you as the leader had a tough uh, conversation, I think in a board meeting, everyone was given the the directive to cut your workforce by something like 10%, your bottom 10%, something like this. And I remember your, your uh, placement, your, your modeling as the leader was like, Hey, my bottom 10% affects business performance more than your top 10%. And I was like, man, that's just, how do you deal with this as a coach? And his question, uh, his directive to you was you need to apologize. You had an uncomfortable conversation. You need to go apologize. Well, it's, they were the one who were in the wrong. It's not my fault. And Chris kind of paused, got that little smile that he usually gets and says, are you that likely to smile. gain or lose respect if you make that apology? He's like, oh, yes, thank you. Thank yeah. you for the suggestion. Good yeah. stuff. And I think that's, you know, for those who knew Chris or were not lucky enough to know him, I think what he brought to those difficult conversations was a real respect and a willingness to push his client to be uncomfortable for the sake of their success, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so like you said, I do remember him always leaning in with just an incredible twinkle in his eye and that certain <laughs> tilt of his head, right? And then the question would come. And I would say I credit Chris Coffey additionally with um, making a distinction for me, an important distinction, right? As coaches, we are trained to use powerful questions as one of our standard tools. And they typically begin with what or how they're open-ended. But from Chris, I learned the power of a closed question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm getting the sense, Brandon, that you're not really committed to this process. Is that accurate? Ooh. Ooh. And it's like he could do that so well. So I, I think there's I think there's room for that. You know, there's room for clarity as as long as that's done with respect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Jathan, you know, Jathan does a great job of modeling that in his work and tools as well. You might consider throwing those into the show notes, throw the link in. 
Mm -hmm. um, for the Society of Human Resource Managers, but there's some great stuff there. Yeah, that's actually a good point. We'll see whatever we can include in the show notes, which would include the no fear confrontation and maybe a handful of other, you know, the the three three one or three one one three three one. Um, three three one. Yeah, yeah. There's just there's there's some real richness there, both for coaches as well as for managers and anyone who's leading people, whether they're on payroll, they're volunteers, whether there's a a, a three decade age gap between you, you know, maybe you're a teacher. Um, teaching little kids, or maybe you're fresh out of college working with with very senior individuals, it's really going to be powerful. So we'll see what we can include in the show notes. Um, last yeah. question on the topic of failure, Kimberly, is it's an observational one. Uh, you know a lot of coaches, you have led a lot of coaches in many of the, the workshops. Um, what is a mistake that you see many coaches making, uh, maybe just more often than probably is reasonable? want to narrow that at all? <laughs> like, if, if you could get all the world's leadership coaches into one room and you have 30 seconds to make a meaningful message to kind of improve something everyone, a mistake everyone's making, a failure everyone's experiencing, uh, what, what line might you feed to that group so that the, let's say the proverbial ocean raises all the boats? Hmm. That's such a good question, Brandon. And a challenging one. <clears throat> sure. Ha have a think about it. And again, if you're at yeah. home listening, uh, feel free to, to chime in. Um, what we do, just so you guys are aware and Kimberly, so you have a little bit of time to think. Um, when you send these things to us, we use this to understand what, it, what, what topics need to be broached. We take great answers and, and publish them um, and, and give shout outs on our LinkedIn and in my personal LinkedIn. Um, so we want to engage. The purpose of these dialogues is to engage you as, as um, listeners. So if there is a, a crisp 30-second snippet, send it as a video, send it as a text, tag me on LinkedIn and post it up. However you get it to me, just let me know what, what message would you give to people. So Kimberly, what is something that might make your short list of a message to share with all the world's leadership coaches in one place? Uh, listen more deeply. Coach the person not the problem. Whoa. Whoa. That wasn't even 30 seconds. Can you say that one more time? Listen deeply, coach the person, not the problem. Wow. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what that means, coaching the person, not the problem. My experience is that, you know, because we all have subject matter expertise, it, and like Marshall says, in terms of you know, feed forward. We like to give advice, but often, most of the time, my client knows what they need. And so if I can focus on connecting deeply with them as a person and really, you know, coaching them rather than trying to solve their problem or consult, that those are two different mm -hmm. skills, right? Coaching, consulting, and uh, yeah. That would be my advice. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I have to say, Kimberly, I'm, I'm shamefully a bit guilty of, of falling into one of the wrong categories you've just described more often than I'm particularly proud of. But I think we all do, right? I don't think any yeah, of us are. I, I think very few of us are special in our failures. I think more often than not, we're united by our failures rather than separated. Uh, but, you know, think, as... Brandon, 
You're just making me think of something else there. Lay it on me. As you're speaking, like united in our failures. I think what resonates with me, having been right coached as well, um, is the difference between someone who thinks they know what I should do. And I can sort of sense that on the other side and the difference in someone who really assumes that I've got this and I have the answers and I'm going to find my way. Mm -hmm. So it feels, yeah. Yeah. What, anyway, what does that, that look like? Important. What, what could you watch for in a coaching conversation that you could pinpoint and say, oh, this person definitely is genuinely curious about what the options are versus, hey, I, I know what you need to do and I just need to get you to think that it's your your idea that you've come up with. How do you see that? <laughs> well, Brandon, if I have to watch myself for it, right, which <laughs> I do have to watch for it, is like first when I start to think I know, that's always a dangerous warning sign. Um, and when we as coaches ask leading questions, Mm. So mm. I think aware, right with everything, it's awareness and just mm. being aware of what our own habits are and um, making those visible, right? That's another thing that Chris and Frank do beautifully. How many times mm. have you been in a conversation or training with them and, and they might say, are you aware, Brandon, that in the last five minutes you've used the word but? 17 times, <laughs> right? It's like calling ourselves out and becoming really good at observing behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to uh, give an answer for that question on the record, but uh, you can assume it's a non-zero number. How's that? Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I will say mine is north of yeah. six and yeah. it's horrifying every yeah. time that every time. You know, someone points it out to me. It's like... <sighs> Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, you know, just, just for fun, sometime try sharing that with them. Just literally no jokes. If, if any, if you or anyone else has a chance, uh, to be with one of the, you know, just any one of the greats in this industry, um, try giving some tough feedback, uh, to see how they they'll respond. And I'll give an example that really blew my mind. I won't name names because I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed, but I was with a leader um, and this must have been, well, anyway, I was with a leader. We were driving. Uh, I was in the passenger seat and the person driving was going too fast subjectively from the perspective of law enforcement and the speed limits, whatever. They were definitely speeding. I was uncomfortable. I was also uh, very junior to this individual. Um, and we were overseas working on a, a very uh, critical project. So I, I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I'm just kind of uh, biting my lip, looking around, making sure we're good, everything's safe. And in the distance, I see a red light. Well, we were <laughs> filming with Marshall, and one of the topics was his, his story on, look out, there's a red light. And do you say thank you? Or do you say, of course I can see the red light. You think I can't see this? Why are you telling me that? So I just kept waiting and then the red light was coming and the red light was coming. And I said, look out, there's a red light. And I looked over <laughs> expecting to see cartoonish fumes coming out of the ears and nose. And they looked back and thank you. And just kind of sat there holding the steering wheel. And I thought, oh my God, these guys that really are these, these individuals that are the, the kings in the industry, 
they, from my experience, largely practice what they preach, especially when it comes to that tough feedback. So I've been less graceful than that, I'll admit. Um, but if you have Ditto. a chance to give that back to to Frank or Marshall or any of these guys, I mean, any of these people definitely take that opportunity. They will appreciate it too, which is what's <laughs> also enjoyable. Um, good. Well, you know, as it's a we fun story. <laughs> Um, sure. I often get leaders who they are already successful. They are highly respected and they want to tweak something to become more effective. Um, oftentimes it's in the relational realm. That's kind of one of my areas of subject matter expertise. So communication styles. Um, I'm frequently surprised at how little training is done for managers, right? And we know that people are often chosen to be in leadership positions because they were excellent standout individual contributors. And like you just spoke to it a moment ago saying modeling, right? What we need as humans are positive examples of the behaviors we want to see. And so for a leader who may be working in a context where that is more difficult to find, um, particularly in current climates, right? Tough economy, lots of stress and layoffs, um, that can be challenging. But I think that's, you know, the modeling is really important. And sometimes as coaches, we can provide some of the modeling, right? That's, that's part of what we do. We reflect and mirror, and we also model. And um, so I'd say the people that I tend to work with are people who want to become even more successful. Um, and they're also willing, you know, to concede that there's something they can learn and they're hungry for it. Right. My favorite clients are they're really hungry for it. They're open and, and they are gracious. They are the people who, when they're behind the steering wheel and you call them on something, will say, thank you. Right. Or better yet, not rolling the eyes, but we all have an appreciation for the fact that there's real frustration. Right. Like nobody wears the, the calm face all the time. So um if I'm a leader listening to this interview and I'm thinking, you know, Kimberly, Kimberly really might be the right coach for me. Uh, what I would ask myself is, am I hungry to learn? Am I going to be generous with my focus and my commitment to doing this? And then also a key piece I want to clarify is this needs to be a performance incentive. This is not you are on the way out the, of the organization. This is not remedial. You've got a problem. This is uh, I have I, I'm a high performer. 
I'm an excellent manager. I happen to have a bottleneck that's going to keep me from going to the next level. And that's kind of a three-question framework I could ask myself to determine whether Kimberly is the right fit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is a fair characterization. And I think another important question that some of the best leaders I've worked with are asking themselves is, what am I not giving my team that they need from me? Mm -hmm. Right? Sometimes they don't know how. Sometimes it's not part of their experience that's made them successful to this point, right? We all have to kind of get rid of that. Um, but that's another important one. Mm -hmm. Who do I okay. need to be in order for my, you know, for my team to function the way we need to? Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned subject matter expertise, and I think this is a, a, an important topic because stakeholder-centered coaching is a process. It's not a methodology. It's not adaptive. It is plug-and-play, cut-and-paste. It's a system that no matter what your inputs are, as long as you as a leader have courage, humility, and discipline, and a handful of stakeholders that are willing to support the process, you're going to get better. And we see that, um, we see that empirically grounded as well. What we encourage coaches to do as a differentiating factor is to bring their own subject matter expertise so that if you hire Brandon as a coach, you're going to get the same results as you would if you hire Kimberly. But if you get hire Kimberly, you're going to have this whole other section of subject matter expertise. What, uh, what domain of expertise do you own or what niche, um, what niche do you own in terms of your service offering to clients? I would say it's primarily in the area of communication and relationship building. Um, part of my you know, tagline, if you will, is stronger relationships better results. And I'm really like, for me, as I've shared with you a bit in that story, respectful relationships are important to me personally. So that's aligned with my experience, with my life experience and challenges that I've had, right? Like, trust me, I don't get this respect stuff right all the time. Um, but that's, that's the area that I like to play in. And, and that's because I've done a lot of work in those areas. So I have a lot of learning to share. Mm -hmm. um, I like to ask uh, highlights and lowlights. You know, this is a valuable question, whether you just came back from vacation or you're doing an interview. Uh, thinking about your career, what are some of the, the highlights um, that come to mind or being a coach? What are the highlights? Um, I have to say, like career career wise, a little broader than coaching. Um, one of my highlights was definitely working in Spain. Um, I was working with a group of about thirty people in a training, and did it all in Spanish. And Spanish is my second language, so I had um, a partner who was bilingual and supported me. But boy, that took a lot of courage and humility to do that. Um, but it was a blast. It was so much fun. So I always mm -hmm. really feel proud of myself for taking a risk. Uh, and it was successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fun. Would you, would you do that again if given the opportunity? Yeah, I would. I like to, I, I would also need to prepare, right. And discipline sure. comes in there, but absolutely. I think life is the most fun when you can combine things, maybe stacking, you might've heard of habit stacking, right? But mm -hmm. if I can do work I love with people I enjoy in a place that is fun, for me, that's, you know, that's a lot of fun and there's mm -hmm. learning on top of it. So mm -hmm. 
Okay. So you, you, you have stakeholder centered coaching as a process. So you know that if you're working with a client, they're going to get better. You've got this uh, domain expertise in communications and relationship building. Uh, you have the added benefit of being a, a lover of music and someone who also has some very happy, healthy routines that you can share. What other kind of uh, skills, tools, or perspectives sit in your peripherals that also make you an effective coach? Um, one of the things that I'm constantly educating myself about is I, I put it in the camp of positive psychology, right? You, you spoke to it earlier, eating, moving, sleeping. It's my belief and the research bears it out. Uh, if we do not have those fundamentals firmly established, we cannot function at our best. So that's something that I talk about with every leader. How much do you sleep, right? Mm -hmm. When was the last time that you ate? Right? Some people get angry and that does not help their performance. Um, so I would say some of those, you know, tools and practices around really monitoring just our own physiology are very important. Also mindfulness, that's something that I've studied and continue to practice with on my own. And I think, I think that's key, right? We have to first be aware of something and desire change before we can do it. But if we are not even mindful of how we're behaving or what our impact is or how we're feeling, that's a very tough place to move forward from. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any, uh, let's say, prerequisites to work with you as a coach? Um, and a specific example I'll draw on is I once had a coach who said, I don't work with anyone who doesn't have this a subscription to this particular website that has concrete, let's say, hard skills for managers, because um, they essentially said, I can help you be a leader, but I can't help you be a manager. So you need to sort out your house on a, on a, uh, a managerial level before I can help you with a coach at a leadership level. Do you have any requisites such as you need to be sleeping eight hours a night, or you need to have you know, these other areas of your life um, under control? What does that look like for you? I guess I've not had a client yet that is so far out of bounds on any of those that I felt that I needed to say, I'm sorry, I don't think we can work together. Mm -hmm. um, I have at times through the course of coaching felt that a client might benefit from therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is not within the context of stakeholder centered coaching that this became apparent, but you know, in, in other uh, professional coaching that I've done. And, and that sometimes can be a little rough, but, you know, if somebody's consistently bringing the past or, you know, mm. they seem to be depressed, I think those mental health cases um, and symptoms are things just to be aware of. It's, it's not that coaching cannot coexist, but I want people to get the support they need and I'm not qualified to, deliver the mental health support. So I, I always ask my organizational clients, you know, what do you have available to you in terms of your EAP? What other support and resources can you tap? Mm -hmm. And I haven't, I haven't had it, you know, be a problem where it interferes. I've only had one pe one person who sort of faded away after I suggested that that sounded like therapy might mm -hmm. be more the thing. So, yeah. Well, that's a very important distinction to make as a coach, right? To be able to understand where your, 
where your domain expertise ends and someone else's begins. Uh, I, I, I'd hate to misquote, but to my, the best of my knowledge, I recall Marshall saying in a presentation, something to the effect of psychology is good for understanding the past and coaching is good for affecting the future. And so one of the kind of lines that I can see him draw is as people talk about these past hurts and they're this and that, it's like, do you want to do something about that? If yes, like I can help you. If the answer is no, or I just want to grumble, I can listen. But if you need to understand that, you know, that's not my, that's not something I can help you with. So, you know, here's some, some good, I think it speaks to the, the need to have a good referral network as well as a coach to have whatever yeah. that fringe, uh, fringe as an outside of your domain, uh, who you can, who you can pass over to. Uh, but on the topic of yeah. routines, you know, you've mentioned you encourage people to have better balance in different areas. Do you find that your clients generally have uh, changes in their own habits, routines, or balance uh, as a result of working with you? Um, it depends on, you know, the focus of the engagement. And every client is different. Um, but I think if there's a need and people are open to it, I think that's one of the things that we know is a ripple effect from coaching that if we begin to make progress in one area, it can translate to other parts of life. So um, yeah, I sometimes see people doing that. Um, mm -hmm. One of the questions that I like to ask people is, you know, what are you tolerating and why? Oh, wow. And, and that's often like self-reflective about more than my work, but it's my life, right? Mm -hmm. But it could, could have a work response as well. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I would love to know, we can talk more about this offline sometime. What, uh, what kind of responses you get from that? Can, can you name one or two offhand that you've ultimately been able to create leverage through the coaching with? Um, usually those are in the area of, um, places where people are not living up to their own standards or their own commitments to themselves. And they just need to take a hard look at the impact that's having. I think part of what is really unique about coaching is I think of it as providing a space where learning and growth can happen. And an old mentor said to me, you know, growth happens in an environment of encouragement. And so I think that's part of what I strive to bring to my coaching is to allow it, you know, allow it to be okay for people to not have it all together because there's mm -hmm. a lot of pressure to appear. Um, but all of us, you know, have places that are wobbly and that we're working on. So mm -hmm. just making it normal, like the, we talked about, right? Gaps, that's a normal part of learning and upward progression. Of mm -hmm. course, we have gaps in areas where we have never done the thing before. Well, we're headed into the fourth quarter now, and I, I want to give you the chance to speak directly to some key listener demographics. Uh, so what I'd like to do is I'll take on the, the role of some, some audience segments um, and ask you for advice or what, what kind of advice you would share with someone who's facing my specific set of challenges. Um, and I'll start with aspiring coaches. So, okay. uh, you know, say that I'm a listener, I've heard your discussion. Um, I, I haven't started my coaching career, 
Um, but I'm, I'm very, I just hired a, a coach to help me with parenting and I, I'm introduced to the profession. I'm very interested in making this my career path. Uh, what should I be thinking about from your perspective? What should I be thinking about before I make that plunge into being a coach? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, big picture, you know, think about what your needs are and what your time is available, what resources you have to support you on this journey. Um, get very clear about how much uh, runway you need before you need to earn an income of X in order to support your lifestyle. And I always encourage people to learn and practice on the side and do what you love doing, but like be responsible fiscally as a former banker. <laughs> I think that's part of what helps me sleep at night is knowing that I'm, you know, I have a plan and, uh, just the wish and the prayer, or some of these people who say to new coaches, the measure of your commitment is that you walk away from your full-time gig and you do the solo coaching practice. I think that's terrible advice, but each person has to figure it out, you know, for themselves. So know yourself, know your needs, be real, you know, do that uh, reality testing with smart people you respect, get some input test your ideas, validate. Could I ask who, who did you do that with Kimberly? you know, at your outset, who was your sounding board or who was the person who really helped guide you? Um, I tapped a number of people and probably like you, I have different friends and mentors for different kinds of things. So, um, I felt pretty comfortable understanding what I needed to bring in. So for me, a lot of the, the learning and framing was more around process and structure and building habits because I, I love the idea, but it takes real daily work and effort to make this happen. And you don't always succeed. Oh, that's a scary bit of advice, isn't yeah. it? It might not uh, work. Uh, well, I don't always succeed. Maybe somebody else does, but you know, mm. I don't always. So that's part mm. of it too. Is like get used to being uncomfortable. Mm. I like that. And figure out if you like that, right? And if you don't, then don't do it or do it as a hobby. Mm -hmm. You know. Tell tell me more about that. How might someone go about deciding whether they they like? Being discomfort by definition is uncomfortable. So how could someone identify whether they like the discomfort or not? It's um, a good question. I guess, you know, put your, like in coaching, as Chris Coffey would say, like use it within 24 hours, do it. So if you see yourself shrinking back again and again, okay, you can sort of have some self-compassion and notice that's where you are, that's your reaction, but also be you know, practical. If you can't get past discomfort, you know, this may not be the path for you, right? You can go online and search, you know, what are the qualities of successful entrepreneurs? And if you see that your profile and your appetite for risk is vastly different, that might give you cause. Maybe you want to find another way to pursue this that's, you know, more suited to your needs and your style. I think there's no one right way is the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, if I'm an organization and, you know, I've got some some key leaders that are driving business performance, but, you know, they just have those nagging behaviors that I wish we could change, uh, I believe coaching might be a way to address these, uh, but I'm not really sure where to start or what to look at. Uh, would you recommend a book, a person, a series, a course, a website? Um, how could I find out more about coaching and whether or not it would be right for my leaders in my situation? I think one of the most effective direct ways to do that is for organizations to have a conversation with someone who does what they need, right? If you came to me and you were an organization and you shared, I have leaders, they have some areas that need work, I'd have a conversation with you on what kind of outcomes are you looking for, right? What's your time frame? Um, I'd want to help you understand how my process works and maybe it's a fit for your culture and maybe it's not. I might ask you, how good are you with feedback? You know, what, what is your own level of comfort with difficult conversations? Um, do you have a leadership competency framework? What are you working from? Right. And kind of have a conversation about where are you? Where do you need to get to go? How can I help you? This is a process, stakeholder centered coaching. I think for me, one of the most important things as a former banker, I really value the fact that 95% of leaders who follow this process with fidelity experience perceived change, perceptible change in their leadership effectiveness as measured by stakeholders. That is as close to a formula for success as you can get. Right. So I can assure you as an organization that the process is proven. It's well researched over a quarter of a million people around the world, nonprofits, for profits, different sectors, NGOs. The process works. What I can't guarantee is whether your leaders will, you know, have the courage, humility, and discipline to run with it and and how that might actually work for you. But my, my aim is to partner with you to be successful. Well, you know, something that's really fascinating, Kimberly, and I, I think that we haven't drawn enough attention to this, is that leadership as a contact sport research that you're referencing, where there was a quarter million people, and they, they were taught the process. And 95% of those who consistently followed up with their stakeholders got uh, measurably better by asking the stakeholders, how much change have you seen in the leader's behavior on a minus three to plus three in this particular with this particular behavior? What we're not talking about, though, is that that 95% that got better, none of them had coaches. None of the leaders in this, or I should say, none of the, it was not a, a, uh, a matter of a control group of those who had coaches and those who didn't. None of these people had any systematic coaching during that time from the, the research perspective. So it's actually 95% of people who self-implement and consistently follow up get better. What I've seen on the research side of things is, which should be taken with a grain of salt because this is heavily biased and it's pulling from our own coaches. It's pulling from uh, the clients with which, clients with whom, huh? it's from the clients that are working with our coaches. 100% mm -hmm. of them have improvement at six months, nine months, and 12 months measured by stakeholders. Uh, and so this would be something certainly that you could offer to the organization at the same time. 
Um, good. How about uh, we have had circumstances where leaders have a coach and they, they hear about the systematic approach that we take um, or they hear about tools, stakeholder center coaching or otherwise um, on the podcast. And they say, you know, I, I, I am just not quite so confident in my coach as I'd like to be. I'm not sure how to approach the conversation or even if it should be a conversation. What's your view? Hmm. Um, I appreciate the question. That's something that I talk about with um, my leaders and coaches on the front end, because I, I think it is incumbent on me as a coach to model what I'm asking them to do. So part of my intake process is, you know, will you, Brandon, if we're going to work together, will you agree that if there's a problem with me that you're willing to share it with me so we can talk about it? And if I can rectify it, I will, right? Part of my job is to flex to meet your needs. This is about you. If I can't, or if it becomes clear that I'm not the coach for you, for me, that's part of my personal integrity to say so. But if you have the feeling that I'm not working and I'm not changing, you should get another coach. Like, don't, you know, it's not you. Uh, follow your gut, do what you need to do, but don't be afraid to have the tough conversations. Wow. So you have that arrangement with your clients. If I'm, if I'm underperforming or uncomfortable or whatever, give me that feedback. Absolutely, because that's what I'm asking them to do with their stakeholders, right? So in mm -hmm. this process, I think it's doubly important, but in any coaching engagement that I am, you know, serving clients in, I'm asking for feedback and I'm asking for feed forward um, because that person is the ultimate judge of whether or not they're getting value. Oh, yes. That's, that's a key takeaway for those of you listening. Set that up with your, your clients early on. Make sure that you have that channel of feedback, feed forward, open. Um, okay, here's another one. If okay. I came to you as a coach and I said, Kimberly, you know, I think my coaching skills are, are up to par. I need to work on myself as a service provider. You know, what qualities or characteristics, personality traits uh, should I focus on to develop myself as a coach? So apart from your coaching skills, um, I think a huge one is relationship building and being willing to extend the introduction, be the first one to start a conversation. Um, obviously, you know, building relationships and successful repeat relationships with clients is the easiest way to grow your practice. Um, apart from that, I would say take a hard look at what your strengths really are, because for any of us to be working outside of our strength zone consistently is going to lead to feeling burned out and tired and grumpy. So um, for me, I'm not strong with process and it's something I aspire to, but I frequently tap, you know, other coaches or even friends for suggestions. How can I do this better? Sometimes I hire stuff out that I'm not good at. It doesn't make sense for me. You know, I could beat my head against the wall. It'll take me three times as long to do it. And that's mm. a quick way to, you know, feeling ineffective. So know what you're good at and be willing. You've got to be willing to invest. 
right, in yourself to learn and grow and keep building skills, but also in the support that your business needs because it's very hard to do it all. Good. I'm going to queue up one more point. (laughs) I'm sorry? What would you add? Because what what would you add there, Brandon? Because I know, unlike me, like you are wonderful at systems and process. So maybe from a different perspective, how would you encourage someone to approach that question? That's a really good question, Kimberly. Um, Yeah, if a coach comes to me and says, hey, look, I, I just want to be a better coach but not in the coaching skills domain. I want to be, um, you know, maybe it's, it's professionalism, maybe it's presence, maybe it's um, something along these lines. Um, I would really recommend to find a few coaches that you are willing to follow, listen to emulate, uh, and then sponge up as much time as you can with them. Like I, I am a completely different person I shouldn't say completely. I am a, a notably different person after a couple, spending a couple of days with Marshall because I, mm. I hear him talk. I listen to how he thinks. Um, I try to see as much as I can through the lens that he's looking through, which is very, very high definition. Um, and then reinterpret my situations and my uh, the events in my life through that lens. Uh, and that helps me change and improve as a provider. Because if I could wave a magic wand and suddenly be uh, have the same quality set as Marshall Goldsmith, I'm probably going to be in a better per- position. So I'm going to have myself two or three or four or five people that I'll listen to, watch, follow consistently and say, I want to be some amalgamation of those people. Now, here's the flip side that's not so pretty. I would also say find at least two coaches that you absolutely disagree with from a philosophical standpoint or from a coaching standpoint or that you just genuinely don't enjoy listening to. Listen to them. Spend equal time with them to understand what you don't like about them, what you dislike about their message, what you disagree with, uh, because that will fortify and reinforce what you do agree with without pigeonholing or, let's say, um, getting too myopic on the the topics or areas that you enjoy consuming. If you can force yourself into abrasion, uh, if you can force yourself into justifying why you disagree and actively think about it while you're listening, I think that you're going to have some pretty profound effects that will make you a more robust service provider. You know, speaking of systems, that's a system. It's not a, a prescription. Um, you know, it's not a quality, but it is a a replicable, predictable, and reliable way to consistently improve yourself. That's why stakeholder center coaching makes so much sense to me. I'm not certified in anything else. I have no affiliation with any other coaching bodies. Neither does Frank, neither did Chris, neither does Marshall. The system is what gets it done. Um, and all of the qualities that you bring as a coach are kind of the the real attractors outside of the process. So I think that's how I would, that's the advice I would give to that type of coach. Yeah, that's, I think they will find that very useful. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> you you made me think of Mike McCartney, right? Because he uses this phrase, which makes sense to me, iron sharpens iron. There you go. Right? It's that willingness that you spoke about to put yourself in contact with people who challenge you mm-hmm. for the better. Um, yeah, it's Dr. Jonathan Haidt out of NYU, uh, teaches business ethics, um, has a a wonder. I mean, I could listen to the, the, the gentleman speak all day long. I really enjoy 
um, his approach to academia and what he what he shares, the way he conducts and presents research, one of the things he talks a lot about is uh, the danger of spending time with people who share your worldview, with whom you agree, uh, and not getting enough of that abrasion. And what happens is you get really, really, uh, let's say, narrow, a very narrow tower of expertise that's unchallenged, it's untested, but it's very strongly held beliefs. Uh, and he talks about how this is uh, occurring on university campuses. I definitely recommend checking it out. But that's what I, you'll see happen with coaches is they'll pick one or two people and that's all that they'll follow. If you can get that abrasion, then you will not only learn more, you'll widen your, your um, field of vision, but everything will also come into higher definition. Many things will come into higher definition at the same time. So, um, iron. That sounds yeah. great. And that's Dr. Jonathan Hyde, you said, out of NYU. H A I D T. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, he's got some some fascinating um, perspectives. It's it's what's happening in university, and a lot of it a lot of it um, he connects to. Uh, I'd say check it out. No spoilers. I just the the, the perspectives that he brings um, and the way that he debates topic all topics also is just. Um, peak professionalism, um, untethered to his ideas. You know, here's, here's the data. Here's how I interpret it. What's your thought? Definitely encourage coaches to do the same. And also look outside of leadership coaching. Look at sports coaching. Look at parent coaching. Look at what psychologists are doing and what you can learn from them. Look at what I'll, I will follow a lot, of, um, a lot of fitness coaches and I pick up skills from them, such as something that, that had a pretty big impact on me was uh, a trainer from a group um, called NC Fit. They said, as a coach, some a big mistake they see in the fitness industry is um, coaching someone to perform a movement without showing and demonstrating the full movement. So they'll start off by saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do a squat. And instead of saying, here's what we're going to work towards, now let's break it down. They start right into the breakdown phase. Well, when we look at something like stakeholder enrollment, I'll see some of our coaches start by saying, okay, let's take this minute by minute uh, and figure out what we want this to look like. Instead of saying, let me just show you a good stakeholder enrollment and then we'll break it down. So by widening this field of view, you also pick up, could conceivably pick up new techniques um, as I have. Yeah, that's how I'd respond. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Yes, there are many approaches, and I I think in life and in coaching, having a very full toolbox is important. So yes, you never you want the right tool for the right moment, and that requires you know doing some digging and acquiring building a toolbox. Mm -hmm. So I love that, and from the fitness world too, that's you know very the results are really visible mm -hmm. in a way that is very different from the conceptual kind of leadership realm. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll queue up a question um, and then we'll circle back to this, but I, I want you to, to give you a few seconds to think about it. In Stakeholder Center Coaching, we have a prescriptive list of do's and don'ts that we give to our leaders. You know, things like uh, when you pick stakeholders, don't select your fan group. Make sure that you're you're selecting the right people yeah. and and do things like you know be genuine when you're enacting behavioral change. Don't feel uh, don't feel like it's being a phony. Trust 
the process and what you're doing that uh, it will be recognized so long as you follow up with it. So my question for you would be if, if we made the same thing for coaches, what are some of the do's and don'ts that you would prescribe uh, for coaches who are trying to find their footing in the industry? So think on that question um, because we are nearing the top of our time together. And I want to give those of you at home a chance to join the conversation. So if there's a question you'd like to ask as a coach, if there's a person you'd like to be interviewed, drop us a line, podcast at mgscc.net. That's also true for your music recommendations, your mood playlists, or if you can find some style of music or genre or instrumentation that will make Kimberly and, Kimberly and I say, oh my gosh, I've never heard something like this before. I'll give you a shout out on LinkedIn. Send it to us, podcast at mgscc.net. If you're interested in learning more about our training programs, go to mgscc.net forward slash sample course to get an instant access to the course Foundations of Stakeholder Center Coaching, where you can learn the founding principles of our coaching methodology at no cost to you. So Kimberly, tell us about a few do's and don'ts that might be on the list. Okay. Um, do be honest, right? Represent yourself accurately. Um, do be positive. Learn to catch yourself when you're going down a path that's not working and do something different. Um, do work to establish routines and hold yourself accountable to them. Do start small. We talked a little bit about this, uh, Brandon, and it reminds me of uh, BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford in their persuasive technology lab. Fascinating work and research he does, but one of his phrases that sticks in my mind is, you know, make it stupidly easy and build, like really do something and build success on success. Um, and, and I always find that encouraging. Um, don't be afraid to fail. Don't allow yourself to stay stuck in a rut, right? Find a way to get out. <laughs> um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, and I, don't be afraid to say you don't know. You know, building on what you said about finding coaches to follow and learn from, my best learning has come from saying, I, I don't know, you know, or I know that I'm not doing this effectively. What am I missing? And that takes a lot of vulnerability, but the risk is always, always worth it. Mm -hmm. Well, Kimberly, this has been wonderful to have you. Before we say goodbye to our listeners, could you tell us how could someone find you? How can they follow your story or get in touch with you? Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Kimberly Gonsalves. Um, my company is Leadership State, and you could reach me at Kimberly at leadershipstate.com. Perfect. And we could also go to leadershipstate.com as your website, correct? Yes. Perfect. Well, we will include all of that in the show notes. Uh, my guest, Kimberly Gonsalves. Thank you, Kimberly, for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can find her on LinkedIn, and we'll include this in the show notes. 
This has been a stakeholder-centered coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Join us next week for another episode of Conversations with Coaches.